Uh, it's wonderful to see all of you this morning gathered to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, as you know, we are concluding Ezra and Nehemiah today, last chapter of Nehemiah. The plan is starting next week, we will be working through the Gospel of John and meditating week after week on the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so turn to Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4. We'll be reading selectively through this um, longer, colorful, very detailed passage. Uh, we'll look at some of the highlights. And this, as I say, is the uh, final episode in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah 13, verse 4, let's hear God's word together. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, the great arch enemy of God's people, Tobiah, that is, Tobiah uh, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, uh, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading the wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also a grain and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Okay, jump forward from verse 18 to verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin, 
Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, the other villain, one of three great villains in Ezra and Nehemiah. Therefore I chased him from me, uh, son-in-law of Sanballat. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priest and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood of offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we confess that when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, rebellious and unable to love you and unable to believe in your son Jesus Christ, when we were spiritually dead, you loved us. And you, Father, through your gracious initiative, brought us to spiritual life. You gave us eyes to see our sin and need for a savior, and you gave us grace to believe in your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that every aspect of our, our salvation comes from your undeserved goodness. Thank you, Father, that you have drawn us to yourself. Thank you that when we couldn't take a step toward you, you drew near to us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. As we draw near today to hear your word, Father, we pray that you would be pleased to show us through your word and through your spirit areas in our lives where we are failing to honor you and live for your glory. Give us grace to see our sin, to confess it, find forgiveness, and turn from it. Help us, O oh God, to live for your glory and use your word this morning to make us more like your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, in his book, Orthodoxy, uh, once made the observation that uh, leaving something alone is not the same thing necessarily as leaving it unchanged. So leaving something alone is not the same thing as leaving it unchanged. And he, and he uses an example of a white pole. Uh, if you have a pole, you paint it white, and you leave it alone and do nothing, it will soon become black. For that pole to remain white, you have to intervene consistently. You have to continuously uh, put a fresh coat of white paint on it. And um, I think that's a great image of goodness in a fallen world. Left to ourselves, the church left to itself, you individually left to yourself, you will continuously drift away from the light towards the darkness. You will continuously drift towards compromise and assimilating with the values of the world around us rather than being faithful to Jesus Christ. It takes effort, sustained, persistent, continuous effort to keep people from drifting and bringing them back again and again to the path of obedience to Jesus Christ. And we see that truth really beautifully uh, exemplified in this passage. We see on the one hand how easy it is for God's people to drift from him, despite their solemn resolve not to. They drift. And we see the effort that is required to bring them back to the path of obedience. Uh, the striving that uh, Nehemiah undergoes to bring God's people back to a place of faithfulness. So this morning we will see the tendency toward drift, first, and second, how this drift is to be corrected. The tendency toward spiritual drift and how this drift is to be corrected. 
uh, we need to get uh, a, a clear sense of the chronology here before we make sense of this account. Uh, Nehemiah, the governor of Jerusalem, uh, in the 20th year of the Persian king Artaxerxes, left service to the Persian king and came to Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And he remained governor of Jerusalem for about 12 years until he was recalled by the king uh, in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, we're told in, chapter, in, in verse 6, he was brought back to the king to continue his service there. And then there is this uh, unspecified period of time when Nehemiah is away from Jerusalem where things begin to go sideways. Uh, that time could be three years, five years, seven years, we don't know. But there's a period of time in between his first visit and his second visit. And what is apparent is the fact that the Israelites in Nehemiah's absence are drifting back to their old ways, to their patterns of compromise and disloyalty to God. Uh, they fall short in three areas, this passage shows us. They fail to continue to provide a tithe for the Levites or the temple personnel to do their work in the temple. The money is not coming into the temple, and so the Levites have to leave the temple and go work their land so they can support themselves and their family. So the first thing we see. The contributions aren't coming in. Second thing we know is that there is a violation of the Sabbath. That one day in seven, when God's people were called to worship him and abstain from work. We're told in verse 15, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. This was a day of work. This was a day where business transactions would occur. And there's a third area of failure, and it's an area that we've seen again and again among God's people. Uh, the problem of intermarrying with pagans. Uh, we've seen again and again how Israelites are called not to intermarry with worshipers of other gods. But it's the same thing all over again. And uh, Nehemiah is especially stern with this group. He calls them to account and says, stop marrying the pagans. Take, take an oath that you're going to cut it out. Now, what's interesting about all this is that these three areas are the same areas that Israel solemnly pledged to be faithful to God in about 15, 20 years before this. You might recall in chapter 10, uh, after the walls are built, the Jews come together in Jerusalem, they confess their sins, and it's an occasion of solemn, uh, solemn covenant renewal. They say, God, we want to be your people, we want to be faithful to you, and we want to be faithful especially in three areas. We're going to keep the Sabbath, we're going to provide financially for the temple, and we are no longer going to intermarry with the pagans. There's no reason to doubt their sincerity and their resolve. And yet, 15, 20 years after the fact, all of those resolves come to nothing. Cardinal rule of preaching. There it is. Uh, I hope not to have to, though. Uh, but it, it's those three commitments that they make in chapter 10. It's precisely those resolutions that they're a failing to act on. And what we learn from their fickleness is that the church, prior to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the people of God will never reach a point where they arrive, where they can coast. They've reached the pinnacle of spiritual maturity. In every generation, in every age, it will be necessary to call the people of God back to repentance and reform. 
It's not enough to have one glorious outpouring of grace in the Holy Spirit where the people are convicted and they're committed to God. Uh, that commitment needs to be sustained over time through effort, work, confrontation, prayer. Church work is glorious work, but it is, this side of heaven, inevitably, hard work. And it's hard work because what you're doing is you're pushing back against this tendency to drift towards worldliness and compromise. So when you're seeking to do some real spiritual good, raise godly children, serve in uh, the nursery, serve in, ch uh, in children's ministry and uh, Sunday school, you should be surprised it's hard. Uh, we are engaged in this great work of constantly calling the people of God back and back to faithfulness. And what's true at the corporate level is true also at the individual level. Just as God's people corporately have a tendency to drift, so we also, as the song says, Lord, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We are prone also to drift away from Jesus Christ. That's the default condition of the human heart. That's what Jesus says to us and his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The assumption is that if you are not spiritually vigilant, if you're not praying, if you're not worshiping with God's people, then you are going to be drifting towards temptation and spiritual ruin. It takes effort to avoid that drift. We ought to be diligent in prayer, diligent in reading scripture, diligent in gathering with God's people on Sunday to worship him and participate in communion and have our faith strengthened and enjoy Christian fellowship. By all of these means, God keeps us from drifting. They keep us on the right path of obedience, and when we neglect them, we neglect them to our own harm. Here's the thing about spiritual drift. Uh, you don't know you're doing it when you're doing it. That's what's so deadly about it. It's imperceptible. You take a Sunday off because you decide that you and your spouse would like a leisurely breakfast in the morning, and guess what? You're going to feel great, typically. Like the roof isn't going to collapse, reminding you you should go. It's like, oh, this was good. All right, it was refreshing. And then the next Sunday, it's going to be just a little bit easier to not show up to worship with God's people for the flimsiest of reasons, and then do it again and again. And all the while, you feel fine. There's nothing wrong. But what's actually happening is you're drifting steadily from Christ because you're neglecting the means that he has given you to build you up in your faith. You're like that swimmer in the ocean who's having a good time and not realizing that gradually he's being pulled away from the beach or the shore by the current. He's, he's fine, but all the while he's moving further away from land. That can happen to us spiritually. We think we're okay. Nothing seems wrong. But as we neglect meeting with God's people, we neglect the word, we neglect uh, scripture, we neglect, neglect, neglect prayer, I should say, uh, we drift. And it's imperceptible and it's deadly. So what I'm saying to you is don't underestimate the wickedness in your own heart. Don't think that you're fine if you're not using the means that God has given to you to build you up in your faith. Uh, build you up in your faith. Uh, use the means that scripture sanctions to keep us close to God. Worshiping with his people. Um, reading his word and praying. If you're not doing that, you're drifting. So, how do we course correct? We see God's people are not following through on their resolution to be faithful to God. How do we reform our lives corporately and individually when we see the drift? And Nehemiah shows us the way. There's a very colorful episode when he comes back uh, from his time with the Persian king. Uh, he's shocked by what he sees in the city of Jerusalem. Eliashib, the priest, who is not to be confused with the high priest, uh, this is the priest that's responsible for the storerooms in the temple, 
These are the rooms that were supposed to house, you know, the grain and wine uh, and all kinds of good things that were supposed to be given to the Levites. Now, this priest, Eliashib, decides, you know what, let's, let's repurpose this space. We're not going to use it as a storeroom uh, to feed the Levites. We're going to convert this, like, warehouse into, like, a summer residence uh, for the oily Tobiah. Uh, keep in mind, if you've been following along, Tobiah has been one of three arch enemies of God's people and of Nehemiah specifically. Uh, but because the priest is a relative of Tobias, he says, hey, why don't you come over? Uh, you can bring your things, you can put your furniture in the space, and you can use it whenever you like. And this all happens when Nehemiah, of course, is gone. Now, after years of being away from Jerusalem, he returns, and he goes to the temple. And what would Nehemiah have expected to see? the Levites, the priestly class, engaged in singing God's praises and there's a flurry of activity, but it's crickets. The Levites are not in the temple. They have to go uh, provide for themselves by working the land. Who's in the temple? Of all people, it's Tobiah. He's managed to worm his way back at the very heart of uh, the worship of God's people. He's in the temple precincts. Now, Nehemiah is not the kind of guy to see the name of God dishonored and sit idly by. He is deeply incensed by this act of contempt for God. Nehemiah has the man's furniture flung out of the space uh, in a way, incidentally, that's reminiscent of Jesus when he does the temple cleansing. Jesus fashions a cord to drive out the money changers because he has a zeal for God, a zeal that consumes him. So the furniture is thrown out, the space is purified, and its original contents are restored. Nehemiah doesn't behave this way because he's got a short temper and he's personally slighted by Tobiah. He behaves this way because he wants all people everywhere to honor his great God and king. There is a holy zeal for the name of God, a passion for the name of God, seen also in our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants people to honor God and submit to the commands of God. And when he sees God's people deviating, it's not a matter of indifference. It eats him up inside. Something has to be done, and he does it. He does it again and again, as we see throughout this passage. What that shows us is those who love God have a passion for his glory. They're not content to just grow personally. Right? They see the church, the church drifting, engaged in all kinds of moral and theological compromise, but I'm doing well. I'm reading my Bible daily, I'm praying, I'm growing in Christ. Never mind that, that the community of faith that's supposed to be glorifying God is drifting, I'm fine. That's not Nehemiah's attitude, that's not Jesus' attitude. Yes, by all means, grow personally, uh, but we want to have a zeal for God's name to be honored among his people. And when they're drifting, it should matter to us. Uh, we should act. We should do something. This is a responsibility that not just the leaders of the church have, but all of us have to a degree. And one basic way to help the church not slide is to pray. When's the last time you prayed for CBC? If you're members here, one of the things you commit to doing is praying for one another. That includes the church. When's the last time you prayed fervently for the well-being of your local church? Prayed for its leadership, for God to keep them from moral and theological compromise? Pray for the unity of the body. Pray for the effectiveness of the church and evangelism and equipping people to live for Jesus. When have you prayed for the different ministries, children's ministry, you know, men's and, and women's ministry? When have you brought those things before God and asked him to help us be faithful? 
One of the ways in which zeal for the name of God expresses itself is a heart for the local church, which includes petitioning God on behalf of that church. So if that's something you're not currently doing, if that's not on your radar in terms of your prayer life, I strongly urge you and call you to petition God on behalf of CBC. So we see then a Christ-like passion for the name of God. Second thing we notice is that Nehemiah is willing to confront people. He's not, in a sense, he's not a nice guy. Right? This is the great modern virtue. We want to be nice. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to say anything. There's nothing wrong with that in a sense. Uh, but Nehemiah's allegiance wasn't first and foremost to not rocking the boat. Like he cared about pleasing God, not man. And so throughout this passage, uh, we see him confronting. Uh, the Levites aren't where they, are, should, where they should be. Verse 11, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Levites aren't there. And notice he doesn't put the blame on the Levites. They need to make a living. They're fine. A good leader knows how to blame the right people. He doesn't blame the Levites. Blames the leaders. What are you doing? You know you weren't supposed to, you're supposed to fund them in the ministry of the temple. It's not happening. What's going on? Confrontation. Sabbath day is then being violated. Verse 15 and following. So what does he do? He confronts the nobles of Judah. What are you doing? We know that this is a day that's holy to God. You're, you're desecrating it with your commercial activity. Repent. Stop it. And he goes to, the, to those who are intermingling with the pagans. And his response here is particularly devastating. I mean, he doesn't, it's not just confrontation. I think he appears to beat some of them up. I think he's particularly incensed by the fact that even their children are going astray. The children who should have been a holy seed for God and brought glory to his name are, are going astray and worshiping idols because of their, the folly of their parents. Yeah, he's worked up. And, and in his frustration, he confronts them. Same thing, verse 25. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Uh, not, I'm not saying that the specifics of his zeal necessarily apply now. I'm saying that the heart behind his actions uh, continues to shape our course. But notice, confronts, confronts, confronts. Three times to address each of the three major areas of failure. He's confronting people. The, the truth is we don't like to be confronted. We don't like it when people come to us and say, hey, what you're doing is not right. It's displeasing to God. What we like to hear is, you're fine. You've got this. You're, you're going in the right direction. Keep going. You do you. You can think of other modern cliches. right? You're, you're fine the way that you are. You're, you're doing so great. That's what we want to hear. The fact is that often, though, we need to hear something else. You're failing to glorify God by the way you're living. Your life doesn't match up with scripture. And God is calling you to repent. We don't like to hear that. When we hear that, we question the person's motives. We engage in, in, in self-justification. Well, it's not, they're not seeing the whole picture. Uh, that's our characteristic response. But you have to understand, the way God keeps us from drifting spiritually is by providing leaders who are willing to call us out for our disobedience. That's the way God brings reform to his people. He provides a leader who's willing to say hard things to his people as they drift. Those are the kinds of leaders you want in a church. Not leaders that are going to tell you what you want to hear. You're great. You want leaders that are going to confront you and say, Jesus is calling you to repent of the path you're currently on. And you, and you need that ministry from pastors, but also from fellow uh, brothers and sisters. And I emphasize that point 
Because I think especially in our context, there is an allergy towards correcting people's lifestyle choices. Uh, the expectation generally is that pastors and teachers and parents and counselors are never going to tell someone that they're making evil choices. Instead, they're going to affirm and confirm them in their lifestyle choices. You're doing great. Keep going. Make these small adjustments, perhaps, but let me affirm you in the lifestyle you've adopted. And sometimes that attitude can seep into the church. You know, how dare you call me out? No, you need to be called out sometime. Uh, sometimes I need to be called out. We all need to be corrected from time to time. And the question is, are you teachable? Are you someone who can be approached relatively easily and told, hey, I, don't, I think there's a discrepancy here? Or are you one of those people who's very difficult to approach you? Somebody comes to you to correct you, you've immediately got 10 reasons why they're wrong. Right? Uh, if you want to know the kind of person you are, ask the people in your immediate sphere. Ask your wife. Ask your husband. And then don't attempt to defend yourself when they tell you you're not easy to talk to. Uh, scripture says that those who refuse correction and persist in their wickedness will be suddenly destroyed beyond healing. Proverbs 29.1. He who is often reproved, told again and again, he who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. You know, you might resist for a little while, but eventually it will catch up to you is the point. When someone confronts you to correct you, be receptive to that. So we see Nehemiah's willingness to confront, and then third, we see Nehemiah's willingness to also take decisive actions to bring about reforms. This whole chapter is full of his activities to correct the, the deviation of God's people. When he finds out that the Levites have, le have left, the first thing he does is he goes around and he collects all the Levites. Come back, guys. Let's go back to the temple. Uh, he makes sure that the tithe goes back to the temple. The people start paying it again. And he identifies certain men who are considered reliable to be in charge of the distribution uh, of the goods to the, uh, to the Levites. Uh, as far as the Sabbath goes, when he sees that he's, it's being desecrated, he takes certain steps. We're going to keep the gates to the city closed on the Sabbath. They're not going to be opened to allow for uh, commercial activity. And not only that, Levites are set aside for the purpose of guarding the gates. Don't let anyone violate the Sabbath. And those merchants who show up and come right up to the gate and say, hey, let us in, he says, I'm warning you, if you don't knock it off, you're going to be in trouble. Then they stop coming. He's uh, got that kind of authority. Notice, it's, it's not enough to say, hey, we, we are doing evil by not observing the Sabbath specific steps need to be taken to correct the evil that's being committed. It certainly takes pretty dramatic steps with, the, with those who intermarry. Uh, he calls them to repent. Uh, he, he calls them to take an oath that they're going to stop doing what they're currently doing and stop giving their sons to marry their daughters and take uh, their daughters to be wives for their sons. Take an oath, he says, to give those things up. Concrete steps are needed to secure the course correction and the reform of God's people. Lots of implications of that. Th think about these two specifically. Uh, I think when you read this chapter uh, and you look at all the things he's doing, all the appointing people to do that and finding the Levites who have left and making sure that the gate is not open, uh, it's easy to read that and go, man, that must have been tiring. <laughs> Leadership is exhausting work. Right, all of these actions that need to be taken for the sake of course correction. 
Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, perhaps, brothers, sometimes we are not the initiative takers that we need to be in our home. I'm talking to fathers um, and husbands. We're, we're tired from our nine to five jobs, maybe longer. We come home and we're exhausted. And we see things that are wrong and maybe we say something. But we often don't take the steps that are necessary to bring about the reforms that we need to bring in our family, uh, partly because we're just tired, <laughs> partly because it's exhausting to try to take steps that will redirect your family and, and will redirect the church. I mean, one cause of passivity in the home, lack of male leadership, is I think just the weariness of leading. God is calling you not to be passive, but to identify where reforms are needed and then resting in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, working hard to make sure that there are steps being taken to bring about the reform. That's God's call in your life. A second thing to notice in this regard, as we consider this, uh, this, this persistent need to uh, reform our behavior, is that it helps to explain, I think, one of the reasons why our resolves to do certain things often fizzle out. Uh, have you ever had this experience? God shows you something from Scripture. Like he shows you, for example, that you need to be more serious about your prayer life. And you, you come before God and you say, God, I'm sorry. I've been very negligent in my prayer life. Please forgive me. Help me to do better. And you resolve to do better. And you even tell the people around you, wife, husband, friends, I'm going to do better. The Holy Spirit convicted me about this. So maybe for a period of time you do it, and then it fizzles out. Why? Well, there are probably several factors. But one crucial reason is that you didn't actually take any steps to specifically course correct. Like you could have said, okay, I have a problem with prayer. What specifically do I need to do to address this problem? Like, maybe I need to memorize the Lord's Prayer and use that as a pattern for my own prayer. Maybe I need to read a book on prayer or listen to a sermon on prayer. Uh, maybe I need to carve out 15 minutes each day right around breakfast to make sure that I have a block of time each day to pray. But notice, it's not just, oh Lord, I'm wrong, please forgive me, help me to do better. But there are concrete steps that I'm committing to to course correct in this area of my life. Is it possible one of the reasons that some of your commitments haven't materialized is you've never taken the trouble to really think through what it would mean practically to become a person of prayer, to read the Bible with your kids or whatever? You need some sort of plan, some sort of vision for how you are going to reform this aspect of your life. Nehemiah takes concrete steps to address the sin of, his, uh, of uh, the Israelites. And finally, let me note quickly and fourthly that throughout this passage, Nehemiah exhibits a desire to please God. You see these little prayers interspersed throughout the account. Like verse 14, for instance. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Now, we shouldn't misunderstand what's happening here. Nehemiah is not saying, uh, what was he not saying? Uh, yes, there we are. Uh, Nehemiah wasn't engaged in some legalistic activity where he is saying to God, uh, because I've done X, you owe me Y. Right? This is sometimes a misinterpretation of uh, passages like verse 14. Like he's putting God in his debt because of the good things that he's doing. That's not what's happening here. What's happening in these prayers is that Nehemiah is asking God that he would be pleased with his work, with his attempts to reform Israel. 
Uh, we, need to, we need to recognize as God's people that our good works don't save us. Jesus saves us. But having been saved by Jesus Christ, it is possible to please God through our obedience. We can do good things that offered to God through the work of Jesus are acceptable to him, and he delights in them. And that's actually one of the things that motivates our obedience is, God, in doing this thing that might be hard and might require sacrifice, I am bringing delight to my Father in heaven. And that desire to please God is what drives Nehemiah's reforming efforts and will give us the strength to pursue the reform that God calls us to in our lives. I want to please God and understand that our obedience, imperfect though it is, when offered through Jesus, really delights God. That should motivate you to be obedient to it. Well, as we step back from this final chapter of Nehemiah, what's striking about it is that it is something of, a, of an anticlimax, isn't it? It's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a disappointment. We've seen all of this great reform work happening among God's people in the previous chapters. Uh, God's people have committed to keeping the covenant. They're committed to not intermarrying with pagans. Some of the people we saw last week in Randy's message are returning to Jerusalem uh, sacrificially to be, to be where God wants them to be. There's all of these hopeful things happening. And if it had ended in chapter 12, it would have been, yeah, you know, great. All is well in Israel, happy ending. But that's not the final note of the book. The final note is Nehemiah tirelessly working to course correct the deviations of the people, and he succeeds temporarily. But you get the sense that it's just a matter of time until Israel goes back to her old ways. Uh, you, you get the sense that he, here is a tireless leader who's working hard to reform God's people, but his efforts are constantly confronting and colliding with the fact of Israel's sin, the stubborn fact of sin. And that there, there might be a gain for the moment, but Israel is destined to revert back. And what we see in this final chapter is that if God's people are going to be the people that God wants them to be, they need a better leader who is going to introduce deeper reforms. They need a leader who is not going to simply address their outward behavior, but they need a leader who is going to address with the deep inner flaws that go all the way down. What's interesting is at this point in Israel's history, um, we are on the very edge of inspired Old Testament history as far as Israel is concerned. This is about as far as God's revelation about Israel goes. This is about a thousand years after Moses. They became a nation about a thousand years before when they were brought out of Egypt, and here they are a thousand years later. And are, are they a people dedicated to the Lord going from strength to strength? No. We find them reverting back to the same compromises and sins that they have throughout their history. And so this final chapter in Israel's history causes us to cry out, Lord, provide someone who will deal with the root cause of your people's trouble. That heart of stone, that will bent in rebellion against God, we need someone to heal us of that. And then when about 350 years later, uh, God's inspired record of his historical dealings with his people picks up, we are introduced to the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he is greater than Nehemiah because whereas Nehemiah can only confront the people with their sins, Jesus can actually take those sins away. Nehemiah can tell them what they're doing wrong, 
but he's powerless to make them clean. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes into the world. He's crucified and he dies, bearing the judgment of God for our guilt and our sin and our penalties. And he takes away the guilt of our sin that we might stand before God holy and clean and right. And whereas Nehemiah could implement certain external reforms, he couldn't finally change the heart of the people. But Jesus Christ does that. Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit, works in the very depths of our soul to renew our hearts, to conquer that stubbornness that's deeply rooted in us and cause us to delight in God and trust in him. John tells us that all those who are united to Jesus by the Holy Spirit have power to live for the glory of God. John 15, verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We've seen the nothing in 13 and and throughout the Old Testament scriptures. We've seen what it's like for God's people in their own strength to seek to please God. There is no fruit apart from his intervention. But those who are united to Christ, those who possess the Holy Spirit, have the power to bear fruit for the glory of God. Jesus is the reformer and the leader that not just the Israelites need, but all of us need. He is the one who makes our heart clean and strengthens us to live for the glory of God. So the the challenge that God's people are facing in this passage is one we can readily identify with. Here's a group of people who had a moment of spiritual illumination where they committed themselves to doing God's will. But after a few years, perhaps because of the distractions of life, their commitment peters out. I think if you look back on your life, you can see moments like that as well. Moments where the Holy Spirit shows you something, some lack in your life, not reading the Bible with your kids, not having unbelievers in your house and showing hospitality, whatever it is, you are convicted and you resolved And that resolution came to nothing. Look back on your past and perhaps you see just a graveyard of resolutions made in the sight of God that didn't amount to anything. Now, without Jesus, if we just looked at our lives and our failures, we would despair. But when we see our failures to follow through on our commitments to God, we need to understand that there's grace for us. We need to run to our Savior, Jesus Christ, receive his forgiveness, rejoice in it, and then we need to look to him in faith to provide the, the strength that we need to walk in obedience. Living for the glory of God is not just a possibility for a small segment of God's people, some sort of spiritual elite. Because we have Jesus Christ, it is possible for all of us to live for the glory of God. So when you fall short, run to Jesus, rejoice in his forgiveness, and trust in him to empower a life of obedience to God. May God help us. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your persistent faithfulness to us. We thank you that even when we fall well short of God's high calling on our lives, there is in you an ever-flowing fountain of grace to make us clean and to provide the strength that we need to live for God. Lord Jesus, if there are individuals here this morning or watching who are discouraged by their failures, cause them to look to you and find in you all that they need to live for the glory of God. Amen.